Hi, this is Drifting Cloud Press and your host, Gabriel Stevens. Um, today we'll be playing some music from the album by Akira Kusumura, In the Dark Woods. And um, today we'll be exploring um, a favourite book of mine um, and the idea of time in Einstein's Dreams, a novel from Alan Lightman. But first up, DNA by Akira Kusumura.
So that's DNA um, by Akira Kosamura in the Dark Woods. And um, to go back to this book by Alan Lightman, um, just a little uh, precursor to the book. Alan, um, at the time of writing it, uh, teaches uh, physics and writing at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and currently directs the MIT program in writing and humanistic studies. And this little book, it's about A6 in size, um, is each chapter is a date and each, and each chapter um, looks at time in different forms. So in one world, the time is a circle and in another, time exists in a bell jar. Um, so to begin with, I will read from the prologue to Einstein's dreams. In some distance arcade, a clock tower calls out six times and then stops. The young man slumps at his desk. He has come to the office at dawn after another upheaval. His hair is uncombed and his trousers are too big. In his hand, he holds 20 crumpled pages, his new theory of time, which he will mail today to the German, to the German Journal of Physics. Tiny sounds from the city drift through the room. A milk bottle clinks on stone. An awning is cranked in a shop on Martigese. A vegetable cart moves slowly through a street. A man and woman talk in hushed tones in an apartment nearby. In the dim light that seeps through the room, the desks appear shadow, shadowy and soft, like large sleeping animals. Except for the young man's desk, which is cluttered with half-opened books. The twelve oak desks are all neatly covered with documents left from the previous day. Upon arriving in two hours, each clerk will know precisely where to begin. But at this moment, in this dim light, the documents on the desks are no more visible than the clock in the corner or the secretary's stool near the door. All that can be seen at this moment are the shadowy shapes of the desks and the hunched form of the young man. Ten minutes past six, by the invisible clock on the wall, minute by minute, new objects gain form. Here, a brass wastebasket appears, there, a calendar on a wall, here, a family photograph, a box of paper clips, an inkwell, a pen, there, a typewriter, a jacket folded on a chair. In time, the ubiquitous bookshelves emerge from the night mist that hangs on the walls, the bookshelves hold notebooks of patents. One patent concerns a new drilling gear with teeth curved in a pattern to minimise friction. Another proposes an electrical transformer that holds constant voltage when the power supply varies. Another describes a typewriter with a low-velocity type bar that eliminates noise. It is a room full of practical ideas. Outside, the tops of the Alps start to glow from the sun, it is late June. A boatman on the air unties his small skiff and pushes off, letting the current take him along Astras to Gerbengas, where he will where he will deliver his summer apples and berries. The baker arrives at his saw on market geese, fires his coal oven, begins mixing flour and yeast. The two lovers embrace on the Nidegeg bridge, gaze wistfully into the river below. A man stands on his balcony on Schiffelob, studies the pink sky. A woman cannot sleep, walks slowly down Cramgas, peering into each dark arcade, reading the posters in half-light. 
in the long, narrow office, on Speckergas Gase, the room full of practical ideas, the young patent clerk still sprawls in his chair, head down on his desk. For the past several months, since the middle of April, he has dreamed many dreams about time. His dreams have taken hold of his research. His dreams have worn him out, exhausted him, so that he sometimes cannot tell whether he is awake or asleep. But the dreaming is finished. Out of many possible natures of time, imagined in as many nights, one seems compelling. Not that others are impossible, the others might exist in other worlds. The young man shifts in his chair, waiting for the typist to come, and softly hums from Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. So since, so since that um, prologue ends with the uh, Moonlight Sonata, by Beethoven, I thought I would continue with that song before going back to Akira.
14th of April, 1905. Suppose time is a circle bending back on itself. The world repeats itself precisely, endlessly. For the most part, people do not know they will live their lives over. Traders do not know that they will make the same bargain again and again. Politicians do not know that they will shout from the same lectern an infinite number of times in the cycles of time. Parents treasure the first laugh from their child as if they will not hear it again. Lovers making love the first time undress shyly, show surprise at the supple thigh, the fragile nipple. How would they know what each secret glimpse, each touch will be repeated again and again and again, exactly as before? On Martigais it is the same. How could the shopkeepers know that each handmade sweater, each embroidered handkerchief, each chocolate candy, each intricate compass and watch will return to their stalls? At dusk the shopkeepers go home to their families or drink beer in the taverns, calling happily to friends down the vaulted alleyways, caressing each moment as an emerald on temporary consignment. How could they know that nothing is temporary, that all will happen again. No more than an ant crawling round the rim of a chrysalis, a crystal chandelier knows that it will return to where it began. In the hospital, a woman says goodbye to her husband. He lies in bed and stares at her emptily. In the last two months, his cancer has spread from his throat to his liver, his pancreas, his brain, his two young children sit on one chair in the corner of the room, frightened to look at their father, his sunken cheeks, the withered skin of an old man. The wife comes to the bed and kisses her husband softly on the forehead, whispers goodbye and quickly leaves with her children. She is certain that this was the last kiss. How could she know that time will begin again, that she will be born again? will study at the gymnasium again, will show her paintings at the gallery in Zurich, will again meet her husband in the small library in Frimborg, will again go sailing with him in Thun Lake on a warm day in July, will give birth again, that her husband will again work for eight years at the pharmaceutical and come home one evening with a lump in his throat, will again throw up and get weak and end up in this hospital, this room, this bed, this moment. How? Could she know? In this world in which time is a circle, every handshake, every kiss, every birth, every word will be repeated precisely. So too every moment that two friends stop becoming friends, every time that a family is broken because of money, every vicious remark in an argument becomes spouses, between spouses, every opportunity denied because of a superior's jealousy, every promise not kept. And just as all things will be repeated in the future, all things now happening a million times before, some few people in every town, in their dreams, are vaguely aware that all has occurred in the past. These are the people with unhappy lives, and they sense that their misjudgments and wrong deeds and bad luck have all taken place in the previous loop of time. In the dead of night, these cursed citizens wrestle with their bedsheets, unable to rest, stricken with the knowledge that they cannot change a single action, a single gesture. Their mistakes will be repeated precisely in this life as in the life before. 
And it is these double unfortunates who give the only sign that time is a circle, for in each town, late at night, the vacant streets and balconies fill up with their moans. So that's the first chapter in Einstein's Dream by Alan Lightman. Up next, we have a resonance from the album In the Dark Woods. Next up, Between the Trees. Thank you. 
Okay, so just for the um, duration of the show being an hour, I'm trying to choose smaller chapters out of the book. Um, but if you do want to um, read more about Alan Lightman's Einstein Dreams, you can get, uh, I'm sure you can get copies any, from most stores. The, the one I have is is, uh, is particularly beautiful. It's hand cut and the pages are all crinkled. Um, but I'm just looking through. Um, so this is the 18th page, 19th of April, 1904. It is a cold morning in November and the first snow has fallen. A man in a long leather coat stands on this fourth floor balcony on Kramgeis, overlooking the fountain and the white street below. To the east, he can see the fragile steeple of St. Vincent's Cathedral. To the west, the curved roof of the Zittelgorotum. But the man is not looking east or west. He is staring down at a tiny red hat left in the snow below, and he is thinking, should he go to the woman's house in Fruborg? His hands grip the metal balustrade, let grow, grip again. Should he visit her? Should he? He decides not to see her again. She is manipulative and judgmental, and she could make his life miserable. Perhaps she would not be interested in him anyway, so he decides not to see her again. Instead, he keeps to the company of men. He works hard at the pharmaceutical, where he hardly notices the female assistant manager. He goes to the brazier on Kuchigas, and in the evenings with his friends and drinks beer, he learns to make fondue. Then, in three years, he meets another woman in a clothing shop. She is nice. She makes love to him very, very slowly over a period of months. After a year, she comes to live with him in Bern. They live quietly, take walks together along the air, are companions to each other, grow old and contented. In the second world, the man in the long leather coat decides that he must see the Fruborg woman again. He hardly knows her. She could be manipulative, and her moments hint at volatility, but that way her face softens when she smiles, that laugh, that clever use of words. Yes, he must see her again. He goes to her house in Fruborg, sits on the couch with her, and within moments feels his heart pounding, grows weak at the sight of the white of her arms. They make love, loudly and with passion. She persuades him to move to Fruborg. He leaves his job in Bern and begins this Fruborg post in the bureau. He burns with his love for her, and every day he comes home at noon. They eat, they make love, they argue. She complains that she needs more money. He pleads with her. She throws pots at him. They make love again. He returns to the post bureau. She threatens to leave him, but she does not leave him. He lives for her, and he is happy with his anguish. In the third world, he also decides that he must see her again. He hardly knows her. She could be manipulative, and her movements hint at volatility, but that smile, that laugh, that clever use of words. Yes, he must see her again. He goes to her house in Fruborg, meets her at the door, has tea with her at the kitchen table. They talk of her work at the library, his job at the pharmaceutical. After an hour, she says that she must leave to help a friend. She says goodbye. They shake hands. He travels the 30 kilometres back to Bern, feels empty during the trade ride home, 
goes to his fourth-floor apartment on Cramgeis, stands on the balcony and stares down at the tiny red hat left in the snow. These three chains of events all indeed happened simultaneously, for in this world time has three dimensions, like space, just as an object may move in three perpendicular directions corresponding to horizontal, vertical and longitudinal, so an object may participate in three perpendicular futures. Each future moves in a different direction of time. Each future is real. At every point of decision, whether to visit a woman in Fröborg or to buy a new coat, the world splits into three worlds, each with the same people but with different fates for those people. In time, there are, in, there are an infinity of worlds. Some make light of decisions, arguing that all possible decisions will occur. In such a world, how could one be responsible for his actions? Others hold that each decision must be considered and committed to, that without commitment there is chaos. Such people are content to live in contradictory worlds, so long as they know the reason for each. And with that, we are on the fifth song in the album In the Dark Woods, A Kaleidoscope of Happiness. Up next, Snowy Sky.
This song is called Shadow and is the eighth song on the album, In the Dark Woods. So a little bit about Akira Kosamura, uh, the artist that you've been listening to, as I read out of um, Einstein's Dreams, is um, an artist who was born in Tokyo in 1985, and he's a Japanese composer who debuted his first solo album, It's On Everything, on an Australian label in 2007, while he was still in school. And then that same year, he founded his own label, Shoal Records, which garnered good reviews and various albums of crossover genres, in which he features the sounds of piano, strings, wind synthesizers, and field recordings. And it's that that capturing of um, the natural sound of of things that I really find that I can hear in his music. Um, And you get that his inspiration and his energy is drawn from nature. And he released a few singles recently that I've... I've come to really like, um, and I thought I would play some of those um, in contrast to the album we've been listening to, or as a continuation of. This one is called Passing By.
passing by. I was listening to that song this morning, actually, when I was um, writing. And <clears throat> it really evokes that idea of something passing by, whether that be a, a memory or someone walking through it. The more I listen to it, the more I, I enjoy I enjoy that texture that it has. And I just wanted to read another chapter. And this time, dawn, the word dawn caught me. Um, I'm trying to write a collection of poems that are based around dawn um, and the courting of dawn and all the encounters with dawn, which I found from a poem on Lorca. Uh, he wrote um, on this idea of dawn. And so this one captured my attention. 22nd of May, 1905. Dawn. A, smoke, a salmon fog floats through the city, carried on the breath of the river. The sun awaits the bridge, throws it long, reddened spikes along the cram gas to the giant clock that measures time, illuminates the undersides of balconies. Sounds of morning drift through streets like the smell of bread. A child wakes and cries for her mother, an awning creaks quietly as the milner arrives at his shop on the Marquis. An engine winds in the river, two women talk softly beneath an arcade. As the city melts through the fog and the night, one sees a strange sight. Here an old bridge is half finished. There a house has been removed from its foundations. Here a street veers east for no obvious reason. There, a bank sits in the middle of the grocery market. The lower stained glass windows of St. Vincent's portray religious themes. The upper switch abruptly to a picture of the Alps in spring. A man walks briskly towards the Bender house, stops and suddenly puts his hand to his head, shouts excitedly, turns and hurries in the opposite direction. This is a world of changed planes, of sudden opportunities, of unexpected visions. For in this world, time flows not evenly, but fitfully, and as a consequence, people receive fitful glimpses of the future. When a mother receives a sudden vision of where her son will live, she moves her house to be near him. When a builder sees the place of commerce in the future, he twists his road in that direction. When a child briefly glimpses herself as a florist, she decides not to attend university. When a young man gets a vision of the woman he will marry, he waits for her. When a solicitor catches sight of himself in the robes of a judge in Zurich, he abandons his job in Bern. Indeed, what sense is there in continuing the present when one has seen the future? For those who have had their vision, this is a world of guaranteed success. Few projects are started that do not advance a career. Few trips are taken that do not lead the city of destiny. Few friends are made who will not be friends in the future. Few passions are wasted. For those who have, had not, have not had their vision, this is a world of inactive suspense. How can one enrol in university without knowing one's future occupation? How can one set up an apothecary or market geist and when a similar shop might do better in Spittlegeist? How can one make love to a man when he may not remain faithful? Such people sleep most of the day and wait for their vision to come. Thus, in this world of brief scenes from the future, few risks are taken. 
those who have seen the future do not need to take risks, and those who have not yet seen the future wait for their visions without taking risks. Some few who have witnessed the future do all they can to refute it. A man goes to tend the museum gardens in in Nektul after he has seen himself a barista in Lassine. A youth embarks on a vigorous sailing voyage with his father after a vision that his father will die soon of heart trouble. A young woman allows herself to fall in love with one man even though she has seen that she will marry another. Such people stand on their balconies at twilight and shout that the future can be changed, that thousands of futures are possible. In time, the gardener in, in Nekal gets tired of his low wages, becomes a barista. The father dies of his heart, and his son hates himself for not forcing his father to keep to his bed. The young woman is deserted by her lover, marries a man who will let her have solitude with her pain. Who would fare better in this world of fitful time? Those who have seen the future and live only one life, or those who have not seen the future and wait to live life, or those who deny the future and live two lives. So a lot to think about in that book of time um, and to allow for that to sit and that story to settle up next is Roses in Monochrome.
So that was Roses in Monochrome. And uh, for this show concludes our listening of uh, Kira Kosamura's um, songs, both from In the Dark Woods and his singles. To finish off, I wanted to play uh, Maurice Ravel, uh, Mirrors, and um, just introduce the idea of the next show, which will be, I'll have a guest on uh, called Tom, and we will discuss uh, our journey to the river every day that we're doing for 70 days uh, with Leon, uh, all three of us being on the Poetics of Imagination course. Um, And so I hope to talk to him about uh, the river and what it means to go down there um, every morning, seven o'clock for 70 days. And I'm sure we will discuss just more than that, but that will be the tip of the iceberg. And so, Mirrors, which is a song about ocean and so much more.